Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Prayers of King David, with a message titled, God Protects His Messiah. So turning your Bibles to Psalm 18, verses 1 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are many statements in the Bible which explain to us, the readers, why the altogether complete and glorious God would ever have bothered to create anything, much less create this planet and the people on it who are created in his image. See, here's a conundrum. God certainly wasn't compelled to create. I mean, after all, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship, a relationship of love and joy that required nothing to be added. But the Bible explains that God did not create out of a sense of need. Rather, he created out of his fullness or as an expression that his joy in the Trinity sought to externalize itself or paint a picture of that joy in the creation of the universe and most specifically in the creation of man. God displayed his splendor. And he makes a promise about the world he's created. Numbers 14.21 promises that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That is, every rock and stick, as well as everything done on this earth, will eventually testify to the wonder and the excellence and the majesty of God. That promise gets repeated in Habakkuk 2 verse 14, which says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The words will be indicate that as of yet the earth is not yet filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that's where the biblical drama comes in. From the creation of Adam to the fall, to the promise of great Savior. You know, Peter's words that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. All that we learn that God intended that the glory of the Lord should shine forth through the Messiah, Jesus, at his crucifixion and then in his eventual transformation of all things. And that's quite a story. But along the way, we find there are a number of things, evil things, that would try to stop this from occurring. And so from the time of Adam and Eve who were enticed into sin to the time when the chosen people were reduced to slavery to many times when it seemed in the kingdom of David, the forerunner of the Messiah, that he would be wiped out. There are many times when we might have wondered, are the promises to fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, are those promises really going to be fulfilled? And that's where Psalm 18 comes in. Psalm 18 is a royal psalm. That means that it's a psalm that celebrates the kingdom of David, the man from whom will come the Messiah, the savior of the world, and the coming ruler of this earth. And I say this because as we read through this psalm, please resist the temptation to apply everything to yourself personally. That is, when we read of how God rescued David from a strong enemy that sought his undoing, that we don't immediately think of the strong enemies that seek our undoing. No, no. There's something unique in this psalm that's intended only to be applied to David. David is the forerunner of the Messiah. If this psalm is to be applied in any direction, it should first and foremost be applied to Jesus, the one who has rightfully inherited David's throne and who will eventually fulfill the promise to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. If there's anything we learn from this psalm, it's this. God is determined to make sure that nothing but nothing prevents Jesus from ruling this earth. God will ensure that all his promises are kept, and he will ensure that Jesus, the great Messiah, will one day rule the nations and manifest the glory of the great triune God. 
In other words, this psalm is assurance for every believer that God will keep his word. All right, before we begin, please notice that Psalm 18, which we will break into two sections, studying the first section today and then the second one tomorrow, that Psalm 18 is almost identical to 2 Samuel chapter 22. And if you're studying 2 Samuel 22, you'll notice the very first verse of that chapter, and it reads, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now go back to Psalm 18, and you'll notice that the psalm has a heading, and the heading reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and with that the psalm begins. And what follows in both passages, that is in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18, are the words that are almost identical with only a few minor differences. And so are the two songs different? Well, some scholars believe that, yes, they are, that Psalm 18 was written when David was first delivered from the hand of Saul, and that 2 Samuel 22 came at the end of David's life, and the song gets repeated as a further reason for praise. Now, that may or may not be the case. We simply don't know. But there's another difference between the two. In 2 Samuel 22, the song is David's personal expression of gratitude to the Lord. He'd reached the end of his life, and the Lord had not abandoned him. But in Psalm 18, the song is presented in such a way that it's available for all of God's people to sing. The people of Israel have been spared from great evil and ruin because God spared David from his enemies. Their king was victorious, and therefore they as a people were spared. And furthermore, their king was victorious, and therefore the knowledge of the glory of the Lord really will fill the earth one day. And so the people realized that their own well-being was connected with the well-being of their king. So might I also add that for New Testament believers, this is true for us. Our king is David's greater son, Jesus. God has protected him from even death itself so that our salvation has also been protected. For if the cords of death would have claimed Jesus so that he could not have escaped. We would have died in our sins, and the hope of eternity would have died along with Jesus. So I think we're ready for Psalm 18. Today we're only going to get to the first 19 verses, leaving the remaining 30 verses for tomorrow. But, but these 19 verses can be divided into three sections. The first section, verses 1 to 3, is an important introduction to the theme of this psalm. God has saved his king. And of this, the congregation of Israel is called to sing praises. The second section presents us with what has been the dilemma. David was in great danger, and if God had not intervened, David would have died, and the hope of the gospel would have been lost. That brief second section is praise that when David prayed, God answered his prayer. What a wonderful thing. And then third, the longer section, verses 7 to 19. This is a poetic description of the power of God to save his anointed. And from this section, we get the sense that although it's true that from the earthly perspective, it looks like David had almost been defeated, yet from God's perspective, we can see that God is aroused to save his chosen king. Very good. This is a psalm that promises us that God will protect his chosen one, the forerunner of the Messiah. And since that's true, it tells us that God keeps all his promises. So let's begin. Psalm 18, 1 to 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You know, the words, I love you, O Lord, are somewhat unusual because the word for love is not the usual Hebrew word for love. And some have suggested that the first line could also be translated as, I exalt you, O Lord. That is, the king expresses that God has been so good to him that the king feels he must tell of the excellence of the God who has rescued him. In short, the very first line of this psalm indicates that David is so very different from every other Near Eastern king in that time period. David believes that his throne is secure not because of his own strength and military prowess, but because of the strength, he says, the might of the God who saved him. God receives the glory. David would take none of it. Now, you contrast that to some of the ancient kings who claimed, as did Sennacherib, for an example, that no God can deliver out of his hand, and we see the difference in David. One is arrogant, Sennacherib. The other, David, is humble. God did it all, says David. If it were up to my power, I would have failed. And then David goes on to use images of God's protection. A rock. Other translations have suggested that the word should refer to a crag, a single portion of a rock where one finds protection from enemies. And then he speaks of a fortress. Again, a protection against enemies that attack. And finally, he abandons the images and simply calls God his deliverer. That is, I would have died had God not rescued me. And then turning from the protection he has received, David now sets his gaze firmly on the one who protected him. My God, he says, my rock, the one in whom I have taken refuge. That is, I didn't rely on a magical incantation or a way of conjuring up some form of spiritual power. David said he called on the Lord. He prayed for protection. And that alone is the explanation of his salvation from the enemies. And furthermore, David wants Israel to know it. They have a king. And they are safe from their enemies because God saved the king. And thus he has also saved them. All eyes are on God. All praise belongs to him. This past year, we've seen some groundbreaking advancements in terms of Back to the Bible Canada's international initiatives. This July, in partnership with Back to the Bible India and Sri Lanka, Bible teaching conferences were held with over 750 international church leaders and pastors attending collectively. One pastor wrote, Today I heard the wonderful guidance and teaching of the Word of God through Dr. John Newfeld. I praise the Lord for being given the opportunity to attend this conference. What a blessing. We're so humbled at the ways God is expanding this ministry on a global scale. So if you have a heart to see God's word sown around the world, then we invite you to consider donating towards our international efforts. You can do so at backtothebible.ca slash international or just call us at 1-800-663-2425. The second section of Psalm 18 is a poetic description of the very real danger David experienced. It's meant to help us to understand that the dangers David faced were not minor, they were real. His enemies might have prevailed over him. So let's read verses 4 to 6. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. 
The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Notice that in describing his dangers, David uses the word cord as in, you know, the cords of death. The word is often used to describe the strands that make up a snare for animals, or sometimes even a net in water for fish. Well, in Psalm 119, verse 61, it speaks of the cords of the wicked that are intent to ensnare the psalmist. That gives the idea of some kind of an animal trap. And in Psalm 140, verse 5, David writes that the arrogant have hidden a trap for him, and then he adds, with cords they have spread a net. And so the cords are some form of an attachment that once one is entangled in it, there's no way out. The cords are what we might in our day call a trap. They are a way in which one lures an animal into a given location, and then suddenly and unexpectedly, the trap is sprung. And so David describes the strategy of his enemy. They have not come out to meet me in a full frontal attack like on the battlefield, nor have they laid charges against him in a way that allows for an independent, objective observer to examine the charges and determine if they are true or false. Such a thing is never done. See, we're given the idea of an enemy who uses deceit and cunning. And just so we don't misunderstand the nature of the trap that is laid out for David, David makes it very plain. There were the cords of death. No, David was not going to be punished. They were out to murder him. And once dead, his enemies are now free of him. And once dead, the messianic promise dies as well. The cords of death, says David, they were there. They would have captured me and killed me. And that's why he mentions the torrents of destruction. Notice that David adds that he didn't escape this trap. No, no, he says, I did fall into it. That's what he means when he says the cords of Sheol, that is, the trap that would lead to me going to the land of the dead, those cords had entangled me. The trap was sprung. David had been caught. There was no way out. And David said he did the only thing that was available to him. He, he cried out to the Lord. He said so in his distress. See, I think it's valuable to stop here and compare this to the experience of Jesus. You know, from the outset, the chief priests and the religious leaders sought to kill him. And initially, they thought that it shouldn't happen during the Passover, for everyone would be watching. But as Jesus was confronting them on every point, it became clear that he was forcing their hand and they would arrest him and crucify him, even though it was done in public. And so they thought they'd have to do something and they made a deal with Judas. Jesus would be praying at Gethsemane by himself and these few disciples. And it was there they sprung the trap, arrest him in the middle of the night while Israel slept, conduct the trial before daybreak, have the verdict in the bag, crucify him on Friday morning, the cords of Sheol now entangle him, and then no crowd will advocate for him. The deed will be done. And David was in a similar situation. We can only guess as to what exactly he's referring to. In his anguish that there was now no way out, he called to the Lord. And here again, David gives us some more images. From his temple, he heard my voice, he says. God was enthroned in holiness, the place where seraphs cry out his praise. And there the great God heard the voice of David, his chosen king on earth. And then says David, this was the difference between life and death. And we come now to the third section of this psalm. This is an extensive passage in which David, in poetic form, describes God's answer to the plaintive cry of his chosen king. Psalm 18, 7 to 19. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. 
Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me on the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So it's important to read all of that and simply catch a feel of what we're reading. What a description of God, the God of anger, the God of action. God the warrior, God the avenger of wrong, God the one who goes to war against the doers of evil, God the one who calls nature to do his bidding, and perhaps more than anything else so that we won't forget it, God the one who delights in the man he has chosen as his king. But now let's slow it down and divide the section into a number of subsections. The first subsection describes God's anger, and we find that in verses 7 to 8, and we get the sense that in poetic form, God first hears that David's enemies have caught him in a trap of death, and all that remains to them now is to do the actual act of killing. They've been plotting, and now their schemes are paying off. And in the glories of heaven, the news is brought to God. Now, now look, we're not to get the idea that, that God doesn't know about this until now. I mean, remember, this is poetry. And we're to imagine an earthly king who hears that evil people in his kingdom have trapped and are threatening to kill one of his nobles, and he hears of it and rises in anger. And that's the image. God is deeply angered by the plots of the wicked. And as he expresses his anger, all of creation is feeling the effects of that anger. The earth is shaking. The mountains are trembling the impact of his anger. But in God himself, smoke goes forth from his nostrils, and we can imagine a mythical dragon smoking in anger. And God's anger leads to action. And the first action is that God bowed the heavens, meaning that all creation is now ready to comply to his will at all points. And then on a number of occasions, we read of darkness. Darkness is under God's feet. Darkness is God's covering. Darkness forms a canopy around him. And the idea is that God approaches in anger. But up to this point, the enemies of God are not aware of how close God is or how close they are to being destroyed. And then there are the images of the swiftness at which God moves. He's flying on the wings of a very fast cherub, as fast as the wind. And finally, we notice how suddenly God breaks out onto the wicked. Hailstones and coals of fire break through the thick, dark clouds where God is approaching. It happens with such force that the wicked have no way to mount a defense. And then David speaks about in here, look at verses 16 to 19, where David speaks about, again, using highly poetic and symbolic language, the language of deliverance. David, as it were, was drowning in the waters. He had no air and he was about to die, except God drew him out. The wicked would have destroyed him, but God supported and rescued him. As I've already done, let me do it again and apply this to Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the life of David. 
The waters in which Jesus would have drowned was the cross, and which Jesus was crucified and where he died. Good, said the wicked, we've killed him. But the father was angry, and for three hours, darkness was over the land. And then on that Sunday morning, when Jesus was dead and buried, and it should have seemed that his enemies had prevailed, the cords of death and the cords of Sheol were broken, and Jesus emerged from the tomb. And why? Verse 19 tells us why. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Son of God was the object of the Father's delight. The Pharisees were not the object of his delight. Death would not hold the Son of God for the reason that God delighted in him. But also death could not hold him, for the Father had made a promise to be fulfilled in the Son. The earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The enemies of God wanted none of that. We will destroy the one through whom the Father made the promise, they said. But God protects his chosen one. God protected David. God protected Jesus, the greater David. What fills the heart of every believer with joy is this. God will never abandon his promises. When evil men and women rage, the God of heaven responds in wrath, and he responds by protecting his chosen one. And we, the people of the chosen one, are therefore saved as well, because our lives are hid in him. So take heart, son and daughter of Jesus. God protects his Messiah, and thus you are safe. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, do you think there's really people out there that are that are intentionally trying to work against Jesus and even his return and reign over this world? There sure are. Um, and Jesus told a parable that says exactly that when I'm talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so the enemy comes along and he uh, puts these uh, tares, these weeds, to actually interrupt the harvest. And so Satan doesn't want people to be in heaven. He wants them to be condemned along with himself. And so he does everything that he can to prevent the gospel of Jesus from you know, winning people to Christ and, and to give them eternal life. So yes, the enemy has his servants who are given the charge to do everything they can to interrupt the gospel. Therefore, uh, we need to pray very fervently uh, that they would not succeed. That's a great word. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you found yourself struggling with your self-esteem, I can assure you you're certainly not alone. Our self-esteem is fragile. It can blow up with kind words or accomplishments and crumble with failures or criticism. Wouldn't it be a relief to be liberated from the grip of external judgments and even our own self-doubts? Well, Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, shows us just that. Keller walks us through how centering our identity in Christ can eliminate the noise of opinions and judgments. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering this small but powerful booklet for free this month, while supplies last. Just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Request your copy today while it's still available. And please, 
Consider how you might support this Bible teaching ministry this month.